title this morning's sermon, As the World Turns. No, it's not a soap opera. This is the real deal. Have you ever noticed how quickly the tide of public opinion can turn? Have you ever thought about that? I think about that. Because it's, it's not just out there in the, in the, in the, the world of the, of the rich and famous. It's here. It's in your life. How quickly we can go from a, being a hero one day to a zero the next. And a lot of people have experienced that at work. Uh, some years ago, uh, there was a scandal that involved the then NBC Nightly News anchor Brian Williams. I put his picture up there so that you might know. I think he's on MSNBC now. And it kind of illustrates the point, and that's why I decided to bring him up. In a February 6, 2015 advertisement in The Week magazines, the magazine and NBC wanted to puff him up because they had big plans for Brian Will Williams. And so here in February, this is kind of what they write about him. Listen to how glowing it is. Some battles are worn inside. And for anyone who's been there, there's a secret. It doesn't harden. It doesn't harden you. It makes you more human. Brian Williams, he's been there. He'll be there. Ten years with Brian Williams. Listen how flowery that was. Okay, 14 days later, in February 20th, headline in the Week magazine, why did Brian Williams tell false war stories? Listen to this. Now, what the opposite, okay, how the world turned. What was Brian Williams thinking? Asked David Graham in the Atlantic. For several years, the NBC News anchor has been telling an ever more dramatic story about his 2000, 2003 trip to Iraq, claiming his Chinook helicopter was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade, forced to land, and rescued from the enemy by U.S. troops. But when he repeated that claim on the nightly news two weeks ago, several soldiers contradicted his account, prompting Stars and Stripes to report that Williams' chopper was never fired upon. Williams, we now, we now know, although I must say, this is editorializing on my part, they knew long ago that he's been telling tall tales for years. Williams apologized for the, for the Iraq, Iraq flub on the air, but this week NBC suspended him for six months without pay, and a $10 million a year anchor was described by a friend as remorseful and shattered. You see, the truth is this. The public is fickle. You, me, we're all fickle. There isn't a lot of distance between public adoration and public anger. Sometimes individuals fall out of favor, deservedly, and sometimes not. The reception Jesus receives as he enters the streets of Jerusalem and the hours following could be a case study in the high and lows of public life and the underlying issues that led to his crucifixion. It's less than a week before his death. Jesus is with that family that he loved so much, his best friend Lazarus. And you remember, it was just weeks ago that he had, risen, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So we pick up the account in our text, John chapter 12, verses 1 to 22. If you have the Bible, or you can open the Pew Bible, and of course it's up here, follow along as I read verses 1 to 22, and keep the Bible open because we're going to continue in that. So here's the account, Jesus with that family. 
Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, which, was, had, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why has not this ointment been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag, carrying a bag of money, and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always ye shall have with you, but me ye not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that, that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. And the next day, much people that were there in the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. He cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found the young ass, a young donkey, sat there upon, as it is written in Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remember they that these things were written of him, that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bore record. For this cause the people also met him. For when they heard that he had done this miracle, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. Verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Oh, how my heart wishes that so many people have that same heart's desire. Verse 22, Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tells Jesus. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was drawing more and more people to Christ. They, they anticipated, they, they were not only enthralled by what he had done, but they were expecting him to do another or do something in their presence because they all wanted to see this magic, this trick, the reality that he is the miracle maker. Verse 10, Jesus' enemies wanted Lazarus murdered. And they wanted Jesus murdered. You know, you do good stuff. You raise people from the dead. You heal people. That is automatically grounds for murder on the part of your enemies. Jealousy and, and fear are powerful forces. The religious leaders were jealous of the affection people had for Jesus, which they did not have for those religious leaders. Institutions don't engender genuine love as much as American corporations try to convince us that the people can love their company. It ain't so easy. 
You can't demand people's love and respect. Fear and intimidation are motivators, but they are ugly substitutes for love and compassion. Amen? You can make people fearful. You can make people do what you want by manipulating them, by threatening them. But how much sweeter is Jesus' method? Love them. Care for them. Woo them with that love. The religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. They were jealous of his message. They were jealous of his gentle touch and his miracles. And they came to the point where they wanted those miracles and that miracle maker dead. But also they feared losing control and power over the people. And that fear is expressed in verse 19. Behold, the world has gone after him. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That's the message that is compelling. The message about Jesus and who he is. Look at Jesus' life and compare it to those founders of so many religions. And you will see a vast difference between the two. You will not find any sin on Jesus' part. You will not find any manipulation on Jesus' part. You will not, uh, not come across any fear-mongering on Jesus' part. He just loved and had compassion and care for people and reached out to touch them and help them. You see, the, the, the enemies of Jesus knew that they were losing it. Sometimes people in leadership, government, job, the church, are in it for all the wrong reasons. They're in it for what they can get. Jesus was in it for what he could give. What a vast difference in leadership that is. What can I give to these people? Can I touch their lives and change it? I love, and I love that story about the woman who had what the Bible calls an issue of blood. Maybe it was leukemia. Who knows? But they called it an issue of blood. And she went seeking out Jesus because she had heard that Jesus was in her town. And she couldn't get near Jesus because the crowds were so vast surrounding him, all wanting him to touch them. And this woman who had gone to doctor after doctor and spent all her money on that kind of medication found a way to insinuate herself through the crowd. And she even got down on the ground the closer she got to Jesus. And the Bible says that what she did was she eventually saw that, that robe that Jesus was wearing. It was a couple of people ahead of us. So she reached into the crowd and she grabbed onto that robe and touched it. And at that moment, Jesus says, who touched me? Now think about that. Have you ever been on a New York City subway at rush hour? Gene and I have. I mean, you know, you're like this. <laughs> who touched me? Why? Because the power of Jesus' healing, by virtue of that woman's faith, began to seep out from him to her. And he knew that someone touched him, believing. And in that faith, she was healed. The religious leaders saw the end of their way of life. They saw an end of controlling and manipulating people in the name of religion. They saw an end to access to the halls of power in Rome. Jealousy and fear were not the only visitors in the hearts of some people in the crowd that Palm Sunday morning who were singing Hosanna. As Jesus rode through the streets of Jerusalem that day, greed was also there. As Mary poured ointment over Jesus' feet, Judas was totaling the cost of each drop. He cries out, you're wasting money. We need those dollars for the poor, liar. 
Verse 6 says, Judas wasn't concerned for the poor. He was a thief. He wanted to rake off his share. So many charities that, are, that people are pouring dollars into, and this is a particularly tender moment right now. Do you know the institutions and the groups and the people to whom you're giving money for the, for the cause in the war? Some of them, most of them probably are legitimate, but some are not. And this was the case. This man was not legitimate. He wasn't concerned about, about the, the loss of this money for the poor. He just wanted more of it for himself. There were genuine symbols of love and respect in the crowds that adorned the streets that day as Jesus rode down the center of Jerusalem. The palm branches laid in Jesus' pathway were strewn by the common people. Laborers, fathers and mothers with children by their side, shop owners and farmers. Palm leaves called branches symbolized the Jewish people. Palms were used to make baskets and symbol and sandals. They were also the symbols of the word righteousness, being right with God. The Hebrew word for those palms is tamar, and that word is upright. In English, it means upright. If there is something you can say about Jesus, just like that, he was upright. He always did the right thing. How many of us can make that claim? I can't, but he always did the right thing. That's one of the things the average person could see in Jesus. He was a good man, a righteous man, an upright man, a God-sent man. So the crowds blessed Jesus in verse 13. The king of Israel, who has come in the name of the Lord. It just looked like everybody was for him. <laughs> Outsiders would soon become insiders. They were also in the crowd, those Gentiles. Verse 20, certain Greeks were there waiting to see Jesus. These Gentiles would be the forerunners of a church made up of all people. It was no longer a faith based on nationality. It wasn't just for the Jews anymore. It just wasn't for the Arabs anymore. It was for everybody. Man, woman, black, white, Asian, uh, go down the list of all the ways in which we separate ourselves into camps and tribes. In Jesus Christ, all these camps, all these tribes, all these differences could be washed away under the umbrella of being a devotee, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of our faith in Jesus Christ, of our biblical Christian faith, because that's what the Bible teaches. These Gentiles would be forerunners of a church made up of all people. The Gentiles would soon be grafted into the privileged place as God's children when God's chosen people reject the gift of his son and his savior, the Messiah, Jesus. There, there he was just feet away sitting on the back of a colt, just hours from betrayal, arrest, and unjust trial with witnesses paid to lie about him. Can you imagine that? Jesus went to what, what could be called a kangaroo court. Every Jewish law that could possibly be violated about how to run a session in court was violated. They threw away all the rules of what was proper and right in the way that someone would stand trial. And everybody knew it. It's documented here in the Bible. All the ways. They had paid witnesses to lie against Jesus. There were supposed to be people who had an opportunity to speak for Jesus. All of that was thrown out the window. The Bible records palms and praises will shortly be exchanged for whips and a cross. 
Jesus, the good man, savior of the world, being carried into Jerusalem by a, a colt, would soon crawl through the streets of Jerusalem, himself a beast of burden for a wooden cross. For the most part, many, like Brian Williams, who fall out of favor, never see it coming. It surprises most people when they fall from grace, so to speak. It surprises many people when somebody finally catches up for them. And all of a sudden, here's what they say, oh, I am so sorry for what I did. You're sorry because you got, am I right? You're sorry because you got caught. Prior to that, you were never sorry. You were indignant. You pleaded your case for your innocence. But all of a sudden, now that you've been caught, uh-uh, it don't work like that. So, so many of them never see it coming, but, Je but not Jesus. He knew in detail what was to be his destiny. Let's pick it up in John 12, 23 to 33. John chapter 12, 23 to 33, up on PowerPoint in your Bible. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. We understand that, right? We're in a farming community. Plant, plant seed corn, it comes up and you have a couple of ears there. 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it into eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this, into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. The people therefore stood by and heard it and said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He knew. He knew. Jesus knew the answers to the questions of his life story. He knew the who, the what, the where, the how, and the why. After all, he and his Father in heaven documented them in Scripture. Old Testament. So he says in verse 23, the hour has come. His death. His death will come on a, on a date certain. So let me ask you a question. How many of you, by a show of hands, would like to know the date and the time that you're going to die? Anybody? No? How many of you say, I don't want to know? Hand up. How many don't care? <laughs> okay, there you go. Now we covered all the bases, right? I mean, we're not leaving anybody out. Most people don't want to know, but Jesus knew exactly what would happen. How many would like to know how you're going to die? How many would like to know how you're going to die? How many would not like to know? How many don't care? Same hands, there you go. <laughs> Christ knew. In verse 32, it says, if I be lifted up from the earth, John 3, 14 Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus knew his death would be by the most heinous and humiliating method, crucifixion. Arms stretched out over wood, nailed in place, nails driven into the arches of each foot. 
As he sags down with more weight on the nails, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and the arms to explode in the brain. As his arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them deep into the relentless throb of pain. Jesus fought to raise himself just enough to get a short breath. In six hours, he died, not by the usual consequence of crucifixion, suffocation. No, in Jesus' case, he died of heart failure. A broken heart due to shock and constriction of the heart by, by a buildup of fluid. When a soldier stabbed a sphere into Jesus' side, blood and water flowed out. Because Jesus knew all this would happen, do you and I have a deeper sense of appreciation when we remember his words, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I call you, you, my friends. When he, when he, when he went through all of that pain of the crucifixion, crucifixion, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about you. You were on his mind. How could Jesus be thinking of me on the cross when there are so many billions of me? He's God. He's God in the flesh. And when he's on that cross, he's remembering the reason why he came, because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world for you, for you. All that being said, Jesus is still a God, is still God and man. In his flesh, his reality strike him with icy cold terror. You know, he, he, is, he is God, but he's also man. The Bible says he, was, he experienced every temptation you and I have. Whatever it is that you and I have gone through, he experienced. Verse 27, listen to this depressing statement. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this end, this, this hour. So he's hanging there. What's he going to say? He's in the garden. What's he going to say? Save me from this? And look at what he says. No. The verse goes on. But for this cause came I into this hour. So here's the question. What was the cause? What caused him to come? Paul supplies the answer in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I guess you and I can put ourselves in there, right in there, chief among sinners. We don't have to look at anybody else. You don't have to look at me. I don't have to look at you. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. So if you were asked, why did Jesus come to the earth and you wanted a shorthand answer, you know what you could tell people? Jesus came to earth to die for me, for me, for you. As he rode through the streets of Jerusalem on the back of that colt, he heard the words from the crowd, bless you, praise you, Hosanna, we love you. But he knew while the lips said bless and praise, the heart said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Knowing the heart, Jesus prayed a prayer, which is hard to get our arms around. While he read their minds and knew what they were really thinking, he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. 
He looked out and said, I forgive you for the lies that nailed me to the cross. And your lies will be nailed to the cross. I forgive your hatred. It's going to be nailed to the cross. I forgive your lusts. They will be nailed to the cross. I will forgive all your sin. It's going to be nailed to the cross. And I'm going to leave it there. Bring your sin and bring your sorrow to the foot of the cross. And let Jesus take it up. Verse 24 tells us, Jesus looked out over the crowd lovingly. And he said, my death will bring you life. If you've asked Jesus to come into your heart, you know what that means. Because you've experienced a new part of your life. What was always dormant in you, that spiritual birth became alive and living in you when the Holy Spirit came into your body. You are one with God because you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin and come into your heart and help you to start the new life of being a follower of Christ. And he did just that. Although the world had turned against Jesus, he had not turned against them. No matter how far down you think you've gone in your life, or no matter where you may be right now, where you're thinking that you're down low and he could never forgive you and never care for you and never love you or always hold it against you, the Bible says, he loves you with an unconditional love. He's promised to never let you go, to never loosen his grip of love upon your life. His death proved his love for us, and now it's time for our lives to prove our love for him. There's a wonderful hymn which we're going to sing. It goes like this. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransom be and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? What have you given? Can I tell you all that Jesus wants from you? He just wants you. No amount of money, no jumping through hoops, no getting religious, no being in the right church, in the right pew at the right time. No denomination is going to save you. No pastor is going to save you. No church is going to save you. No ideology is going to save you. The only way to be saved and locked firmly in the love of Jesus Christ is to receive him. Him who died upon Calvary for you. Him who gave up his life willingly. There's a wonderful song that said he could have called 10,000 angels. But he didn't. He let it happen. He let it happen for you and for me. So great a love is so compelling. And when people know that story, it would seem to me that they wouldn't want to go anywhere else but to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So Father, this morning we know the price you paid. And we know how the world turns. We know how fickle we are. One day we're up, one day we're in for it, one day we're all in, and the next day we're out. I just pray right now in our own hearts today, Lord, that uh, we have asked you to come into our heart and we've hung on there, heads bowed and eyes closed. If you've come here this morning and not known whether you have received Christ as your Savior, that you've never asked him to come into your heart, that you don't know whether he knows you as his child, or whether you know him as, as your Lord and God and Savior. 
this would be a good morning as Jesus rode through the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, looking at all those different people and accepting them in their differences. He accepts you this morning. Would you accept him this morning? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'd like to pray for you. What I'm going to ask you to do is just in your own heart and mind, repeat this prayer. Father God, I pray your forgiveness of my sins. I know I've sinned. I claim the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away my sin. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and rose again on the third day. I believe in that Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that I would follow him all the days of my life. And I pray today it might be the beginning. In Jesus' name, amen.